linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And no, uh, there is nothing wrong with your MP3 player. What is a little different today is that I've finally purchased a good microphone. As you old-timers know, uh, for the first couple of uh, dozen podcasts, I was using a $12 headset mic. Then, uh, once I figured out that I'd be doing these podcasts for a while, I upgraded to a $24 headset microphone. And uh, that got me through podcast number 139. But here we are at number 140, and uh, for the first time, you're probably hearing what I really sound like. I can remember uh, the first time KMO and I talked on the phone, and uh, (laughs) the first thing he said was that he was wondering what my voice actually sounded like, uh, because it was different on most of the podcasts. Now, I still haven't uh, quite figured out the best way to use this new mic, uh, which is a Rode podcaster, by the way, and I suspect that it will uh, take us all a little while to get used to the new sound. But uh, one nice feature of this mic is that uh, it has a jack for me to directly connect a headset to and uh, hear what I sound like as I'm recording. And that uh, means that hopefully you won't get uh, as many voice spikes from me when I get excited. So uh, stay subscribed and we'll see how this works out in the weeks and months ahead. And I'm sure I'll get some uh, microphone using advice from some of you, which I will appreciate and uh, take to heart, I'm sure. Now, uh, the first thing I'd like to do uh, using this new mic is to thank two of our fellow saloners who sent in a donation this week. And they are Samantha P., and longtime supporter, frequent donor, and active participant on our Psychedelic Salon online forums, uh, and uh, is perhaps aptly named a dime short. Uh, So a dime short, and Samantha, I uh, thank you for your donations, and I'll see that they're used in support of these podcasts. I, I really appreciate your help. And please don't uh, feel like you need to make a donation to this salon. Uh, Just uh, telling your friends about these podcasts is more than enough for you to do. Without any real planning or by design, our uh, weekly get-togethers here in the cyberdelic space have grown into a sizable crowd. And uh, so I was very pleased, uh, but not completely surprised, that uh, after I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that Dr. Grobe's psilocybin study had run out of funds, Well, some of our fellow saloners stepped up and made very large donations to keep it running. As a result, uh, this past Saturday, Dr. Grobe and his partners, Dr. Preet Chopra and Alicia Danforth, successfully completed the last session with the uh, final participant in the study. Uh, Before he left the hospital that day, uh, Dr. Grobe, uh, who everybody knows as Charlie, uh, called and left the following message for us here in the Psychedelic Salon. Yeah, hello. This is Charlie Grobe calling. I'm happy to uh, announce that as of today, May 10th, we've uh, treated our 12th and final uh, uh, patient for our psilocybin treatment of cancer anxiety. Um, We would um, like to uh, uh, certainly thank uh, our generous donors, including uh, those who've, who've given funds to the Hefter Research Institute, also the Betsy Gordon Foundation, and also the very generous uh, donors who um, who responded to the uh, uh, Psychedelic Salon podcast recently. 
And again, we're, we're delighted uh, to be able to announce that we've uh, successfully completed the study. The next step will be to uh, do a thorough analysis of our data and then to write and uh, submit report and a new uh, protocol back to the regulatory agencies uh, requesting permission to extend the cancer anxiety study uh, with similar number of subjects but at a higher dose. So again, we're, um, uh, we're very appreciative of the support we've had from the community and uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, speaking further on the, uh, on the analysis of our, uh, of our data. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. And you can rest assured that as soon as Charlie's report is final, he'll stop by the salon and give us an early look at the results, uh, as well as letting us hear a little bit about his protocol for the next phase of this important study. Now let's get to the first of two talks I'm going to play for you today. The second one is a 20-minute introduction to a McKenna, Sheldrake, and Abraham trialogue in which Ralph Abraham tells the story of the deep involvement psychedelics had on the math and computer revolutions of the 60s. But first I'm going to play another talk from the recent World Psychedelic Forum held in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, thanks to our friend and fellow saloner, Otto Weidel, uh, and what he calls his brave little MP3 recorder, most of the English talks from that conference uh, were posted via a thread on the Psychedelic Salon Forum over at thegrillreport.com. And uh, originally, the only talk from that conference that I planned on podcasting was Mountain Girls Talk, which you heard in program number 135. The uh, rest of the English language talks from that conference are being podcast by my friend Max Freakout each Friday on his excellent podcast, Psychonautica. In fact, uh, Max's program last Friday featured one of uh, Dennis McKenna's talks from that conference, and uh, it'll really blow you away, I think. Uh, particularly when he mentions the fact that there are quite literally thousands of DMT-containing plants. And then he goes on to talk about uh, psychoactive frogs, snakes, uh, and even fish and insects. If you're still in school and uh, thinking about getting into psychedelic research, uh, well, I think Dennis's talk will give you leads on uh, a lot of different directions you could take for uh, particularly graduate dissertations. Can you tell that I enjoyed that podcast? <laughs> well, you can find it at dopefiend.co.uk, and uh, along with many other good podcasts there. I think this one with Dennis is uh, Psychonautica number 35. Now, getting back to the talk I'm about to play, uh, during the past year or so, I've received quite a few emails telling me how much they got out of podcasts 7 and 8, which were titled Art, Love, Family, and Psychedelics. And that was uh, from a Palenque Norte lecture at the 2003 Burning Man Festival. The topic was uh, presented by Alex and Allison Gray and their daughter Zena. So when I saw that Allison and Alex had given another family and psychedelics presentation at the Basel conference, I asked Max Freakout if he minded if I podcast that talk here in the salon too, and uh, of course Max had no problem with that. So here we are. The official program for uh, that conference gave the title of their presentation as Psychedelic Families, What Do We Tell the Children? And uh, if you are of a psychedelic mindset and are a parent or grandparent, well, uh, this is a very difficult question. What do we tell our children? In, uh, in this day and age, that can be a difficult question to answer. 
So uh, let's listen to what Allison and Alex Gray have to say on this sensitive topic. Uh, the recording actually begins with Alex in mid-sentence, but I, I don't think too much of the beginning of this talk was missed. Uh, now, here are Allison and Alex Gray speaking one Sunday morning in 2008 in Basel, Switzerland. And where drugs weren't discussed at all, you know. We had no uh, discussion with our parents about drugs. And um, yet, surrounding us on all sides were a variety of different uh, kinds of things. My mother smoked. Uh, My mother smoked through uh, three pregnancies, so did yours. Yeah, and uh, alcoholism sort of hovered in the background of uh, both of our families. Uh, Although our parents weren't alcoholics. But, yeah. they, but they took a drink, you know, like, you know, socially. Only the legal drugs they used. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So uh, they were completely unprepared for the 60s uh, and, uh, and for our behavior. Um, this is this is another way of thinking about families. You know, we got two Aussies here. Uh, Ozzy and Harriet uh, was the kind of uh, family that I grew up with, uh, thinking this is the norm, and uh, this was kind of the American ideal of the happy family. You know, with its teenage uh, teenagers, and uh, the Ozzy Osbourne and the Osbournes uh, present maybe a. a an update and a uh, of someone who's been through the uh, uh, drug situation and is working it out with their kids and stuff like that. I think that what characterizes uh, both of the families, obviously, is that they care about each other a lot. And uh, even if the Osbournes are pretty eccentric by many standards, uh, you can tell that uh, there is love. Uh, they stay well. together, which yeah. in this day and age is really quite something, and, and they are psychedelic families. So, yeah. you know, here, here. Yeah. Um, so, what's the problem with uh, drug education uh, usually? And we'll we'll cover some of the ideas about drug education uh, first off. Uh, is that there is this kind of uh, overriding. Um, mischaracterization of uh, of the drugs and an exaggeration of the problems that uh, marijuana especially uh, gives us. And, yeah. and then they contradict uh, people's own observations like, you know, you know if, if marijuana is uh, not really going to kill you, then maybe, you know, cocaine won't eat it or heroin won't eat it. Like, I don't believe it. You know, people told me that about marijuana and it wasn't true. So why don't I just try something else? I don't believe what people tell me. Yeah, that's uh, a flaw from the beginning. And um, this is was one of those uh, uh, campaigns, the ad campaigns that were very uh, compelling to us, you know, but uh, because it mushes all sort of drugs together, it doesn't really distinguish uh, things. Certainly, it, it doesn't really uh, give you any kind of uh, distinction about the nature of entheogens as regards uh, the nature of other substances, which are truly harmful. And it doesn't distinguish between use and abuse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, this is the kind of drug education that we've been uh, living with in America 
and uh, uh, the uh, Reagan era's uh, Just Say No campaign. And uh, certainly it was admirable in terms of wanting to uh, safeguard the lives and minds of the young. And it's obviously been uh, parodied uh, through our culture as well. And uh, uh, for, for very good reason, because it uh, uh, actually doesn't work. Um, what's interesting, although the, the DARE also ha program has admirable ideals about wanting to, um, uh, you know, safeguard uh, the young, part of it uh, becomes these unmanageable kinds of promises that the uh, unwitting young are kind of demanded to make. And they're enrolled in this idea that uh, uh, drugs are drugs are bad. Okay. And so then I pledge to lead a drug-free life. This is like one of the vows that they're uh, asked to make. Uh, before really having an understanding about the true nature of the various kinds of substances. And uh, so... And it's a lie. It's a lie. Because nobody's going to lead... lead I mean, maybe Christian scientists, but very few people will lead a truly drug-free life. They'll take over-the-counter medications, and they'll they'll take uh, you know prescription medications. They'll they'll use cigarettes and alcohol, and still make this pledge. So that's just a lie. Yeah, it it's uh, it has to do with these kind of inner con conflicts and contradictions uh, that end up as hypocrisy, and uh, the kids are fine-tuned to catch any kind of uh, hypocrisy, and that's why. Uh, in the follow-up studies, they found that it was actually worked against them. You know that uh, the uh, this pledge uh, became a, a gateway to abuse uh, for many kids from the suburbs. And um, so there's various myths uh, about this kind of uh, that are part of the conventional drug education programs. Um, they uh, rely on the just say no. Uh, the experimentation, uh, the myth uh, that uh, the experimentation with drugs is uncommon, uh, that uh, drug use is the same as drug abuse, marijuana is a gateway drug uh, to heroin and cocaine, and uh, then the continued exaggeration of uh, the risks. Um, looking at the realities, uh, over uh, over 50 percent of high school uh, seniors have experimented with uh, you know the various uh, kinds of drugs at some point in their lives. Over 41 percent used a drug during the past year, and uh, around 25 percent used uh, in the last month. So uh, this is also interesting because of uh, the over exaggerations. Uh, Every hundred people who've uh, tried marijuana, only one is a current user of cocaine. Um, so what we're looking for in terms of education is a kind of harm reduction approach, and uh, it distinguishes between use and abuse, and uh, the majority of drug use uh, doesn't lead to addiction or abuse, and um, most users of uh, psychoactive substances 
uh, control their intake. Uh, there's a certain kind of ethics uh, for using drugs, uh, you know, not to uh, dose other people, not to use them uh, during school, maybe at work or uh, uh, in sports or driving. Uh, these kinds of things seem obvious, but these should be. Well, these are the things that parents fear. I mean, that's why I put that picture in there. That's mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, this is what we fear, really. There are perils, and we do. We, you know, when we have children. We want to protect them, so drugs can lead to terrible things as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's just unrealistic to uh, think that teenagers are going to avoid drugs. Uh, when they're trying to push the envelope uh, of their identity, they're trying to discover who they are sexually and, and uh, uh, consciousness-wise. And uh, so keeping kids safe uh, should be the highest priority. And uh, a reality-based uh, approach would uh, provide honest and scientifically informed uh, edu- you know, education on all the drugs, including the prescription medicines, like the uh, antidepressants, that, whose uh, kind of side effects can be suicide and mass murder, um, and uh, so, and then uh, alcohol and tobacco and and uh, these other kinds of addictive uh, substances that are a normal part of a routine, instead of demonizing the you know entheogens and other uh, kinds of substances. Uh, encouraging moderation uh, if uh, experimentation persists and uh, promoting an understanding of the legal and social uh, kinds of consequences of uh, drug use and um, just putting the responsibility uh, back on the uh, person who's using and uh, so that they really understand where they're coming from you know and aren't just being led along in a kind of a peer uh, slipstream and things like that. Um, so uh, the safety first, yeah, do you want to? No, no, please, yeah. continue. Yeah, it's just basically you want to establish a bond with your children and not to come in with total preconceived uh, notions about uh, how they ought to behave. Um, the idea is to listen and to establish a link of trust so that uh, you can really be there for them instead of alienating them. And uh, so you have to learn about the substances and the possible substances that they're using, you know, so that you can be uh, an informed um, assist for them. Uh, You want to... uh (laughs) Wait, I I wanted to say one thing. I just wanted to remind people that, like, when you... You know, as parents, we know that if we go ballistic about something, that is a signal to them, don't talk about that anymore. So when you hear something that you don't like, it's almost counterintuitive not to, like, you know, let the lid fly off. But that's kind of what we have to be as uh, as adults, is, you know, a listener and really, you know, like, like because then they'll come back and talk to you more about it. So it's, it's very, it's that's, like, that's a really crucial time. Yeah, and and it's not uh, easy to restrain yourself from uh, <laughs> when you have kids from a ball, telling them how how they should behave, um, and uh, so uh, this is a kind of a, a funny thing, but basically you want to encourage whatever creative and uh, physical activities 
uh, your youngsters really want to explore. And uh, <laughs> this is what the, this is the one in the middle is what they're doing when they have free time. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like you know, keep them busy between three and six. That's like a good. That's a good like you know. Uh, t- that's the time when most uh, teenagers are using drugs. That's what it was, we were reading, and and uh, so we were thinking about well, what else could they be doing? Well. Yeah, we avoided the teen porn But the. The other thing is to actively engage in uh, whatever kind of social life they uh, have just as a uh, leader in terms of the uh, PTA and, and things that are part of their uh, their peers, parents, and their teachers' situation. You know, just get involved with their school. Yeah, we were always the, the parents in the school setting or the teacher, the PTA situation that kind of... I don't know, everybody looked at us like they knew, you know, you guys do drugs, you know. But, you know, we had some interesting points of view, so you have to be there and speak up, you know, and, and, and be a reality check for the rest of the, the uh, group in the, in the straight back chairs. Yeah. And uh, so also be willing to recognize if there's a problem, you know, uh, if uh, the uh, kids are struggling and they're, they're hooked, you have to be able to... If you have this bond of trust, you may be able to be there to be a support. Uh, Safety First is a great organization, and uh, safetyfirst.org is a, um, they have a lot of literature and uh, uh, support. Yeah, I just wanted to, yeah. Martha, uh, Marsha Rosenbaum is a terrific. This is not the newest version, but I would definitely go online if you're a parent and download the PDF and take a look at, uh, this is the old one, I, I left the new one somewhere. But uh, you know, I just say, yeah, really. I mean, you wanna you wanna be informed as a parent. Okay. Um, Marsha Rosenbaum, by the way, works for Drug Policy Alliance. She's one of us. Yeah. So she goes around and talks to people about the reality-based approach. Yeah. PTA meetings. She's an awesome lady. Um, so this is uh, one uh, view of how states also can respect the. Uh, parental um, authority basically allowing them to uh, make decisions about uh, whether sharing uh, drink with their kids is okay. So this is uh, instead of just a, an age limit on uh, drinking and things like that. Um, uh, well, this is interesting because we, we don't want to discount that there are some substances like methamphetamine and stuff that if you get uh, hooked uh, can be completely self-destructive. Uh, so th- There's this a is, difference. Yeah. Uh, this is a... Uh, this is what we fear. Yeah. And, it, and it's the kind of thing that if, uh, if you've already been lying to your kids about drugs, then why should they listen to you about anything, you know, and including the dangers of uh, meth. So then uh, in the West, there's this... Uh, condemnation of psychedelic use, and uh, it, nevertheless, it continues to be used, and uh, by a, uh, a significant proportion of uh, teenagers and uh, young adults from 18 to 25. Hmm. So uh, uh, it's interesting. I think that this is one of our biggest problems uh, as entheogen users and as parents and things like that is that we're lacking uh, context uh, 
for the uh, use of the substances in a kind of sacred setting. But uh, we can, uh, and so there's been a kind of social disintegration that sometimes follows uh, the use of uh, psychedelics. Just this past summer, we uh, had two young friends who were uh, 18 uh, years old that uh, went through a kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a break, a kind of uh, almost schizophrenic break, uh, because they really, I think that they could have gotten through it if they had the proper kind of um, set supportive setting, uh, but they used the substances in the um, you know, social settings that weren't really conducive to a spiritual um, emergence and uh, so they wound up in the hospitals and uh, have had uh, continued problems. So I think this lack of a sacred context for the Western use of uh, entheogens is, is a true uh, area that we, we have to uh, learn about and develop strategies to uh, work with. Uh, in places like the uh, Brazil and the UDV, uh, they, uh, the adolescents in that um, society use uh, ayahuasca in a very uh, positive, life-enhancing way. It's a way of also bonding with the, uh, the group. We go through such alienation. In some ways, that's really uh, important to distinguish ourselves from our parents, but the, um, these substances can uh, help us to overcome uh, the uh, sort of divisiveness and the, uh, face the inner problems directly. Uh, in the UDV, uh, the pregnant mothers are encouraged to use the uh, ayahuasca, and it's used even during childbirth. Um, the young children are uh, given a little bit uh, as they're growing up and uh, until they're able to uh, use full servings. Uh, I wanted to point out that uh, one is the UDV church and the other is a, a Barquinha uh, but uh, that they're all ayahuasca churches from down in Brazil. Uh, one of the indigenous tribes of uh, Peru uh, used the ayahuasca as a part of their religious upbringing, and it's a window to enlightenment, a portal to divination, and a teacher of plant and hunting and spiritual knowledge, a way of integrating also with their society. Uh, the Buiti um, initiate uh, the young uh, in their uh, iboga ceremonies. And uh, so this is a, another model, another way of looking at uh, this sort of uh, drug use as an initiation and a, a kind of rite of passage. And uh, in the Native American church, the uh, uh, teenagers are uh, actively encouraged to uh, take part in the um, ceremonies in the, uh, the all-night peyote use, and uh, it integrates them into the uh, tradition. And uh, the Weechul, I think, have a fascinating um, kind of use of uh, peyote. Uh, they also uh, use during the pregnancy and uh, childbirth, and um, they start um, using the uh, substances from uh, around age six to eight. And uh, it's interesting that they believe that um, it should be used in kind of earlier childhood uh, before they reach this uh, age of understanding. And 
that is the uh, oh they say that uh, they should have reached the age of understanding so they can verbally articulate their experience but before the um, sort of uh, sexual and uh, other kinds of identity questions of uh, teenagehood uh, kind of click in I can imagine that this keys them into their kind of tribal culture in an extraordinary way and they gain access to the imaginal worlds and this just becomes a permanent part of their uh, worldview. This is an initiation of course yeah. into their community. It's like becoming part of your community, saying like you're six years old but you are part of us, you're one of us and, and uh Yeah. Okay, um, so then in uh, the book Island, uh, Allison was mentioning that the uh, the Palinese ha have their own kind of ritual that uh, involves uh, climbing this perilous mountain and then being introduced to the moksha. And uh, it's put in a kind of symbolic way of, uh, of your life and coming toward enlightenment. So it's a, another initiatory rite. Uh, a way to use these substances in a way that's uh, respectful of their sacramental quality. And um, Huxley in Ireland is uh, talking about how do we educate our children? Uh, you know, you don't give them a chance of, okay, never give children a chance of imagining that anything exists in isolation. Make it plain from the very beginning that all living is relationship. Show them relationships in the woods, in the fields, in the ponds and the streams, and in the village and the country around it. Rub it in. So, um, that's, uh, I think. We have one more. Oh. Ha! The happy. The happy psychedelic family. Sorry, put that in. But, um, yeah. There we are. All American, overfed, psychedelic jokes. Uh, you know. Um, anyway, yeah, I um, I wanted to be personal here and and talk about our personal uh, experience as parents. We have uh, one daughter, as some of you already were, were uh, are aware, as she's 19 years old. And um, Alex and I, after 11 years of being together, uh, happily doing our thing as artists. I introduced the, the idea that we should become parents, actually. I, I lobbied. I, <laughs> uh, I, I took Alex up a mountain in Woodstock, New York. Uh, we took, we took uh, MDMA, and I introduced that, I said, uh, if I recall, I regret to inform ourselves, after 11 years, I regret to inform ourselves that I don't want to do the life training without the parent training. I think the parent training is an important part of the life training. And we had thought we'd be child free for a lifetime, but we, you know, like I was 34 years old, the clock was ticking, and I'm going like, wait a minute, I really think the parent training is an important part of life. I don't want to, you know, miss out on So Alex was down, he was, you know, he was aligned. It seemed like a really good idea. Yeah, <laughs> Great, I think you're right. I really agree, except that we're really not ready because we were totally, uh, we were 
uh, performance artists that were going to parties every day, smoking, doing a lot of psychedelics, and really not living the life that you know we that we envisioned as being good parents. So Alex uh, lobbied and initiated well initiated the idea that we should wait, that we should give ourselves this probationary period. A year, a year was the uh, original thought that we would get our act together, make some money, because we thought money was so important. We learned later that it's not as that important, that, that, that children bring money. But um, we, uh, by the way, if any of you don't have children, that's, that's the truism. But, uh, you know, that we should work and be abstinent. So we chose to be abstinent for a year, and it turned into a year and a half. We, after a year, we looked at our funds and our, and our life, and we thought, let's give ourselves another six months. Uh, to uh, have a conscious conception, which is we did have a conscious conception. I really recommend that. I won't go into that, but ask me about it or write to me about it another time. But uh, so, yeah, so we waited a year and a half absolutely with nothing. We, we, I think we made drinks of coffee, but we didn't use alcohol or smoke pot or use psychedelics for a year and a half. And believe me, if any of you haven't gone for a year and a half without any substances, it's really a great experience. The altered state of sobriety is <laughs> something that we've been asked and I recommend. Over. We've had several periods in our life where we've done that. And it really is a, it's a wonderfully altered... A drug uh, fast. A drug fast, yeah. yeah. So we uh, went for a year and a half through to the pregnancy and then during the pregnancy and then through nursing and I nursed for eight months. And so through all of that, we didn't, we, we were sober, absolutely no, no substances at all. And it was fantastic. And I uh, just didn't want to take any chances. I was 34, 36 years old by then, you know, I just didn't want to take any chances. And I got, we got pregnant the first time we ever, the first and only time we ever tried, every other time we tried not to. And so we did get pregnant that one time and had one child. We only had one. Uh, Terrence recommended that we not replace ourselves. He heard the elves telling him, actually. Yeah, he's, uh, let's see, Terrence said, uh, well, all this visionary stuff is really interesting, but can you tell me something really worthwhile and useful and something, you know, down to earth? And uh, the mushroom said, have only one child, you know. Uh, that will, it will make your lives easier and it will be less of a load on the planet. So, he's, hmm. Good idea. We, we, we thought about it, but we just we, we never tried again and uh, decided that the triangle configuration of our family was perfect for us. And so, yeah, so we, so what did we do about drugs and teaching Zena about drugs? Well, you know, through those uh, early years, we really, I mean, children just don't like to have a lot of smoke around them and you don't really want to smoke on top of them. So we pretty much limited our use to when she wasn't around. We didn't like keep it from her and we always answered her questions. This is what my mother taught me when it came to sex and I, I applied it to drugs. Just whenever they ask a question, you answer it. And you know, you don't tell them the things that they don't want to know or they're not ready to know. But if they ask you something, you tell them honestly. I would never keep anything from Zena and so she doesn't keep all that much from me. I mean, I'm sure she keeps something. but. You know, we've been pretty open with each other through the years. And um, so we answered the questions, and then as uh, time progressed, well, if we wanted to take a psychedelic, we didn't include her in that experience. I mean, for three reasons. 
we would basically get a babysitter and we would go somewhere and do it elsewhere. Or we would make sure she was taken care of, maybe she was visiting a friend or going to camp or something. And then we would use uh, psychedelics for three reasons. One, I didn't want to, we didn't want to be weird around her. Like, what if we acted a little strange and maybe she would think, what's going on with mom and dad, you know? <laughs> And, and number two, you know, what if something happened? You know, what if something went on fire or she got hurt or she needed us to be completely, you know, like available and present? And we weren't. I would not want to blame it on the substance, on the, the Holy Sacrament. So, um, so the third reason is really personal and selfish that I don't want to be worrying about Zena. I don't want to be thinking about a young child when I'm having my own personal experiences. Something that you do you know, for your inner life and your and your partner life, if you do it with a partner. And so, um, you know, for that reason, for those reasons, we never uh, tripped around Zena. Uh, and during, especially the years, like, I say, between 8 and 12, they're very rule-conscious and very rule-oriented. And they really understand about following the rules and not following the rules. And it, it is illegal what you're doing, and it scares them. So during that period, we our use was infrequent, and uh, I know friends, really close friends, who were users that actually gave up the substance during that period, so they wouldn't worry their children. They had just you know serious discussions with them, and the children were concerned about them getting caught, so they basically gave it up for a little while. It's okay to give it up for a little while. You can always go back. It's not uh, you know the, the, the teaching that you've had is always there, so it won't it won't it actually will help you. Um, and so we our, our use was infrequent during that period, and not so much around her. Although we always were open with questions. Then she would come with us though to these psychedelic conferences. Yeah, and uh, and she had lunch with Dr. Hoffman. And she was like nine. And uh, so it's a um, it's interesting though that uh, you know she didn't always put everything together. Um, and I used to go out and do talks, but he does. I don't know how many of you have seen him do his talk about his art, but includes like all the art that was you know, uh, influenced by psychedelics, and he discusses, you know, the influence and, and what he saw when he was under the influence, and Zena would be sitting in the front row when she was two, and when she was four, and when she was six, and she would hear these these talks over and over again, and then when she was ten, she I remember her saying to me one time walking down the street, she said, I know that you and Dad do uh, smoke marijuana, but that's all. <laughs> and I went, I just didn't say anything. I mean, because that's all she really wanted to know. That's what she had made up in her mind. It's kind of like, well, I know there's Santa Claus, you know, because I saw him. I mean, what do you say? No, there isn't. You know, you don't kill kill their fantasy, whatever it is. And so when she finally came around to understanding that that was part of our life, I mean, she, she only, they only hear what they want to hear. So you only answer what they ask you. If she doesn't ask a question, I didn't answer it. So, mm -hmm. you know. At the same time, then, when uh, when those questions did come up, we had to address the idea that uh, this is like the early Christians living in the uh, uh, their spiritual lives in the catacombs and things. We uh, this is not something to discuss with your uh, friends at school. This is not, unfortunately, you know, we're we're part of a of an underground. Uh, Society, and that's a heavy burden to place on a young mind uh, if they're not ready. But at the time that uh, she seemed ready, 
we delivered that one too. But they also really appreciate that you confide in them like that. And they do keep a secret. They do keep it to themselves. Like we explained to her what could happen if she told her friends that we smoke pot. You know, they would not, you know, their parents might not let their children come to our house. So that was, you know, or, or, or something worse could happen. You know, they could come and send and take us away. Oh, we've got to, we've got to go. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As you can tell, uh, this group discussion was just getting off the ground when time ran out. But uh, Allison told me that uh, this led to uh, an informal discussion for another couple of hours, and uh, they even had to finally cut that off in order to get to lunch. Obviously, there is uh, a need for much more discussion about this sensitive topic in our community, and uh, we are certainly fortunate to have Allison and Alex leading the charge here. I suspect that uh, they are the kind of parents many of us would uh, have liked to have been or would like to be. In my own case, uh, I have to admit to being a real jerk about drugs until I finally tried them myself. Until then, uh, my poor children had to put up with me parroting that stupid just-say-no line. So uh, I'm very grateful to Allison and Alex for putting themselves on the line and speaking in public about this very important issue. Let's face it, uh, each generation seems to be uh, a little bit more aware of the real world than their parents are. And uh, once they catch us lying about something like cannabis, uh, they may never trust us again. As a side note, by the way, uh, we just now heard Alex mention uh, Terrence McKenna's proposal that each of us only reproduce once. And if you want to hear his proposal in greater detail, uh, I believe it's part of the McKenna talk that I podcast in program number 122. And how do you feel about Alex's uh, comparison of uh, psychedelic families to early Christians living in the catacombs? While I uh, prefer to think of us as a Robin Hood-like band of merry outlaws, uh, there is a ring of truth to the catacomb analogy. The underlying truth, of course, uh, can be found in Ray and Anderson's great book, The Cultural Creatives, where uh, there are references to the psychedelic community as being among the core of the core cultural creatives. And now that we number in the many, many millions worldwide, our influence in all walks of life is uh, finally beginning to be felt more clearly. Which brings me to uh, the next short talk I want to play for you. As I mentioned earlier, it's from a trialogue, uh, only the second public one, by the way, that uh, Ralph Abraham, Terrence McKenna, and Rupert Sheldrake held at uh, Esalen sometime in 1992. And if I'm not mistaken, this was their first public trilogue since the publication of their uh, first joint book, Trilogues at the Edge of the West. Their first session uh, in this series of trilogues uh, was actually held at night and consisted primarily of the workshop participants telling a little about themselves, uh, along with a discussion of crop circles. And the reason I'm not taking your time with that today is that uh, their crop circle discussion was significantly revised in later discussions, uh, some of which I've already podcast. So uh, right now I'm going to pick up with the first morning session. We begin with Ralph Abraham, and uh, after he goes over a few housekeeping details, he uh, tells what for me is the confirmation of something I've known for a long time. And uh, that story is the story of how the personal computer revolution, the digital revolution, if you will, has been founded in a large part and sustained by members of the psychedelic community. 
Just like uh, psychedelics brought you rock and roll, they have also brought you the digital age, complete with uh, internet-downloaded podcasts. This is certainly a fascinating story, an important story, a historical story, and now uh, we're going to get to hear it told by one of its most influential protagonists, Ralph Abraham. Last night we spoke of our process, but we didn't do it. So you know that this is only the second time that we have been trialoguing in public, but for many years we are trialoguing in private. And our plan here is to try to maintain our private process in public. So, whereas we are interested in your feedback eventually, what we would like to begin with is to have the space to proceed as we do in private to the degree that we can. And at the same time, of course, we can't help but be conscious of the fact that you're here and we've tuned. So, I would ask you, if you think of questions while we're talking, to note them down, because we are interested to hear them eventually and to respond, if we can, as time permits, later. But for uh, an hour or so, we'd like the space to... um, perform like television to a passive audience, in spite of the fact that we are always complaining about this passive addiction. And uh, that's that's one of our so-called rules. Um, We have some other ones that we've... uh, Some other rules that we have... Uh, evolved or rules or or methods of in- inducing an altered state, a joint state, the trialogue mode. And uh, this is consists. The main step is kind of an an induction. And so we, usually we have an induction process in which one one person makes the call to the trialogue mode. And uh, in, in spite of what Terence said, I'm not going to do a dog and pony show, but I'm going to take my turn this morning at the induction, which usually takes 15 or 20 minutes. But having given these rules, I'm now going to break them. And uh, because you are here, uh, we felt the need for a slightly longer induction and <clears throat> what I'm going to do is to try to set the stage not only for this morning's uh, trialogue, but uh, for the whole day. So I'm going to, uh, there's three steps then. I'm going to tell a personal story. Then I'm going to show a video that lasts ten minutes. And then I'm going to do 
the induction for this morning's trialogue, which will necessarily have to be really compressed. So we have developed some uh, methods for the rapid induction of the trialogue state. Uh, I'm going to experiment with another <coughs> shortcut to the induction process this morning, which, uh, of course, if I risk this, might fail. So the first uh, story took place a year ago, and Terence and Rupert <coughs> were involved in no part of this story. <coughs> I was sitting in my office with my secretary, Nina, uh, about a year and a half ago. There was a knock on the door. She said, well, this is a friend of a friend of mine who wants to interview you. But I was very busy with the telephone and the correspondence and stuff. So he came and sat, and I answered uh, his questions without thinking. Later on, a month or so passed, a photographer arrived, and I began to realize that I'd done something uh, significant. I'd given an interview for GQ magazine. I, I called my children, who know about such things, and asked them what was GQ magazine, and they, and they knew what it was, and follow and, and read it to some extent. They live in Hollywood. I was in Italy when the, uh, the magazine finally arrived on the stands. And of course, I had notified my children, my mother, and everybody. I was very proud that in spite of my, my style of dress, that I had been <laughs> the first one in our circle to actually be photographed for GQ. <laughs> but I was shocked in uh, Firenze to open the <clears throat> first page of the magazine and to see my picture uh, occupying a large part of the first page, the table of contents page, where the heading says, Abraham sells drugs to mathematicians. <laughs> and there were some other insulting things in the, in the interview that, as far as I could remember, was largely fiction um, that occurred later on in the magazine. So I didn't mention it to anybody. I came back to California, and I was very pleased that nobody mentioned it. Nobody had noticed. There were one or two phone calls, and I realized that nobody, after all, does read GQ. <laughs> and if they do look at the pictures, they somehow overlooked mine. So I squeaked by, and I was safe after all, this dangerous pass being outed by GQ. <clears throat> Suddenly, my peace was disturbed once again by a hundred phone calls in a single day asking what did I think of the article about me in the San Francisco Examiner or the Chronicle or the San Jose Mercury and so on. After all, the embers in the fire left by GQ had flamed up again in the pen of a, a journalist, a woman who writes a computer column for the San Francisco Examiner had received in her mailbox a copy of this article in GQ in which uh, Timothy Leary is quoted as saying, the uh, Japanese go to Burma for teak and they go to California for novelty and creativity. And everybody knows that California has this resource thanks to psychedelics. And there again, it uh, quoted me as the supplier of a scientific renaissance in the 1960s. And <clears throat> this columnist, didn't believe what was asserted by Timothy Leary and others in the GQ article, 
that the computer revolution and the computer graphic innovations of California had been built upon a psychedelic foundation. So she set out to prove that this story was false. She was about to go to SIGGRAPH, the largest gathering of computer graphic professionals in the world annually, somewhere in the United States, 30,000 or so people gather, all of whom are vitally involved in the computer revolution. She thought she would set this heresy to rest by conducting a, a sample survey at SIGGRAPH a year ago in Las Vegas. She began her interviews at the airport the minute she stepped off the plane, and by the time she got back to her desk in San Francisco, had talked to 180 important professionals of the computer graphic field, all of whom answered yes to her question, do you take psychedelics and is this important in your work? <laughs> so her column in the uh, syndicated in all these newspapers finally said that and again, unfortunately, or kindly, remembered me. Shortly after this second accident in my story, I was in uh, Hollyhock, the Esalen of the Far North, with uh, Rupert and some others of you here. And I had a kind of psychotic break in the night. I couldn't sleep, and I was consumed with a paranoid fantasy about this uh, outage and what it would mean in my future career and the police at my door and so on. And uh, I, I knew that my fears had... Uh, kind of blown up unnecessarily, but I needed someone to talk to. The person I knew best there was Rupert, and he was very busy uh, in council with uh, various friends, but eventually I, I took Rupert aside and I confided to him this uh, secret and all my fears, and his response within a day or two was to repeat the story to everybody in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, assuring me that it's good to be outed and, <laughs> and um, it would be good to come out and to come out maybe in a best-selling book which Brockman, our agent, could sell and uh, hawk for a huge uh, royalty advance and so on. I tried thinking positively um, <clears throat> about this episode, but um, when I came home, I still... Uh, felt nervous about it, and I said no to many interviews from uh, ABC News and the United Nations and other people who called to check out this significant story. I did not rise to the occasion, and so uh, I've decided today, um, <clears throat> by popular request, to tell the truth. <laughs> and <clears throat> uh, this is... Um, perhaps are relevant to our theme for today, a different aspect of vision, and our theme this morning of psychedelics and mathematical vision. So it all began in 1967 when I was a professor of mathematics at Princeton, and one of my students turned me on to LSD. That led to my moving to California a year later and my meeting uh, at UC Santa Cruz, a chemistry graduate student who is doing his PhD thesis on the synthesis of DMT. Uh, he and I smoked up a large bottle of DMT in 1969, and that resulted in a kind of secret resolve <clears throat> which uh, swerved my career 
to an to to a search for the connections between mathematics and the experience of the logos, or what Terence calls the transcendent other. This hyperdimensional space, full of meaning and wisdom, and beauty which feels more real than ordinary reality and to which we have returned many times over the years for in instruction and pleasure. And uh, in the course of the, f the next 20 years, there were various steps I took to explore this connection between mathematics and the logos. Uh, for example, I apprenticed myself to neurophysiologist and tried to construct brain models made out of the basic objects of chaos theory. Um, this was about the time that chaos theory was discovered by the scientific community and the chaos revolution began in 1973. I had built a vibrating fluid machine to visualize uh, vibrations in transparent media because I felt on the basis of direct experience that the Hindu metaphor of vibrations was uh, an important one, a valuable one and therefore that we could learn more about consciousness, communication, resonance, and the emergence of form and pattern in the physical, biological, social, and intellectual worlds through actually watching vibrations in transparent media ordinarily invisible and making them visible. I was inspired by Hans Janey, an amateur scientist in Switzerland, a follower of Rudolf Steiner, who had built an in ingenious gadget for rendering these transparent fluids visible. About this time, we discovered in Santa Cruz computer graphics, because the first affordable computer graphic terminals had appeared on the market, I started a project of teaching mathematics with computer graphics and eventually tried to simulate the mathematical models for neurophysiology and for vibrating fluids in computer programs with computer graphic displays. Uh, in this way evolved a new class of mathematical models called CDs, cellular dynamita. They are a really especially appropriate mathematical object for modeling or trying to understand the brain the mind, the visionary experience, and so on, as far as close, anyway, as mathematics could come to um, simulation of this experience. At the same time, other um, mathematicians, uh, some of whom may have been uh, recipients of my gifts in the 1960s, began their own experiments with computer graphics in different places and began to make films which I used to show in annual uh, film clairvoyance of this evening later on in uh, many years later when I would be sitting in this theater watching a computer graphic film made by Tom Banchoff. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Eventually we were able to construct machines in Santa Cruz which could simulate these kind of mathematical models that I call CDs at a reasonable speed, first slowly and then faster and faster. And in 1989, I had uh, a fantastic experience at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, where I was given access to, at uh, that time, the fastest supercomputer, the MPP, the Massively Parallel Processor. In my CD model 
for the visual cortex had been programmed into this machine by the only person able to, to program it, and I was invited to come and view the result. And looking at the color screen of this supercomputer was like looking through the window at the future and seeing uh, a, an excellent um, memory of a DMT vision not only preceding a pace on the screen, but also uh, going about a hundred times faster than a human experience, and also under the control of knobs which I could turn at the terminal. And, <clears throat> and so we um, immediately recorded this video, which I'd like to show you now. It lasts for 10 minutes. It was recorded in 1989 on the day of my first look through this window. So if uh, you could turn this on. I don't think you have to move very far. You could use this space, and it's not, uh, it doesn't require a perfect view of the screen. And then we'll resume my story. I guess that's the <laughs> Maybe we could... Uh, lift up the Venetian blinds and turn up the lights now. <coughs> yes, we probably can. In fact, you can help yourself to the door. <coughs> so returning to my story now, and I'll quickly bring it to a close, there is, uh, first of all, a 20-year evolution from my uh, DMT year, 1969, to my MPP year, 1989. And following this 20-year uh, evolution and that, uh, the recording of that video, we had uh, two things that I'll mention. One is the story with GQ and SIGGRAPH and the examiner that I've told you, which essentially poses the question, then, has a psychedelic had an influence in the evolution of science, mathematics, the computer revolution, computer graphics, and so on. And the other event, in 1990, um, we got to see after, I think, the uh, publication of a paper on this in the International Journal of Bifurcation and Chaos, we saw an interesting article in the monthly notices of the American Mathematical Society, the largest union of uh, research mathematicians in the world which amazingly redefined mathematics, dropping number and geometrical spaces as relics of history and adopting a new definition of mathematics as the study of space-time pattern. So this is not written by me. This is just in the pages of, uh, of science and the monthly notices of the American Mathematical Society. So we have to admit that uh, mathematics has been reborn and this um, rebirth is some kind of outcome, of, apparently, of the computer revolution and the psychedelic revolution, which took place concurrently, concomitantly, cooperatively in the 1960s. And uh, I might mention a, a, a current event on this horizon, uh, redefining this material as an art medium. I'm going to be able to give a, a concert of this material played in real time with a genuine supercomputer in October in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the largest Gothic cathedral in the world.
Well then, let's come to our subject. And I don't know if you gentlemen need to move up a little bit so that we can uh, trialogue. Now I have to do, uh, since I took so much time on a personal odyssey, I have to do to induce uh, trialogue in one minute. And uh, so this shortcut, what I want to do is um, just pose uh, one or two questions and read one or two excerpts from some favorite books here. So we have to accept uh, now, I think, mathematics either in the new definition or the old one. In the Renaissance cosmology of John Dee, mathematics is seen as the joint therapist of Father Sky and Mother Earth, or a kind of an intellectual spiritual elastic medium uh, connecting up the heavenly realms and Gaia herself. Uh, that puts mathematics then in, uh, on the same level as the Logos, the Holy Spirit. So let's just consider that for the sake of, of discussion. And uh, having seen it as a language of space-time pattern, let me ask you this, uh, Terence and Roop. Um, to what extent could the psychedelic vision of the Logos be externalized? Could it be externalized by any means, either by verbal descriptions, by, by computer simulations, by drawings of really inspired visionary artists? Or on the other hand, in what ways could possibly mathematical vision serve the spirit and extend the mind. Is there a role, in other words, for this kind of thing in our main concerns? <coughs> and uh, <coughs> to give you a fast forward into the answer, let me just read a couple of things here from uh, Fruit of the Gods. Oh, good choice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Terence's confessional chapter, chapter 15, a section called Art and the Revolution. He says, The archaic revival is a clarion call to recover our birthright. However uncomfortable that may make us, it is a call to realize that life lived in the absence of the psychedelic experience upon which primordial shamanism is based is life trivialized, life denied, life enslaved to the ego and its fear of disillusion in the mysterious matrix of feeling that is all around us. It is in the archaic revival that our transcendence of the historical dilemma actually lies. There is something more. It is now clear that new developments in many areas, including mind-machine interfacing, pharmacology of the synthetic variety, and data storage imaging and retrieval techniques. It is now clear that new developments in these areas are coalescing into the potential for a truly demonic or an angelic self-imaging of our culture. Do you remember that at all? I don't know if you've tapped into chapter 15, Roop. <clears throat> uh, here's another one then. In uh, the rebirth of nature, the final paragraph of the entire book entitled A New Renaissance. Uh, Rupert says, 
as soon as we allow ourselves to think of the world as alive, we recognize that a part of us knew this all along. It is like emerging from winter into spring. We can begin to reconnect our mental life with our own direct intuitive experiences of nature. We can participate in the spirits of sacred places and times. We can see that we have much to learn from traditional societies who have never lost their sense of connection with the living world around them. We can acknowledge the animistic traditions of our ancestors, and we can begin to develop a richer understanding of human nature, shaped by tradition and collective memory, linked to the earth and the heavens, related to all forms of life, and consciously open to the creative power expressed in all evolution. We are reborn into a living world. I call down, then, the trilogue mode. <laughs> Psychedelics and, and mathematical vision. I'm sorry to have to cut this off right here, but uh, in order to keep this podcast from running excessively long, I'm going to save the next part of this trilogue for our next podcast. I will tell you, however, that the first person to respond to Ralph's questions was Terence. Now, I know that there are a few slaughters out there who are around my age and can remember the old Saturday matinee cliffhanger movies. You know, the last show always ended with the hero swinging on a vine with a girl in his arms, uh, dozens of hungry crocodiles below, and then the vine snaps and cut. You had to come back the following week to learn that, uh, fortunately, there was a small ledge just two feet below uh, where the vine snapped. Saved again. <laughs> but I don't really uh, mean for this to be one of those cliffhangers. It's uh, just that if I played the rest of this trilogue, we'd be here for another hour or so, and that really is too long for one of these podcasts. But I do promise to get the uh, rest of this uh, trilogue out uh, in the next podcast as soon as I can. You know, uh, just now when Ralph was talking about visually representing a psychedelic experience, I was reminded of a short video that one of our fellow saloners, Dylan, produced. Uh, there's a link to it on the psychedelicsalon.org blog under the uh, post, I think it's titled, He Climbed In. And what I like about this video is that uh, the images are very subdued, which allows you to focus on uh, what I think is uh, really excellent dialogue. Uh, I found the piece very compelling, and uh, at times it reminded me of uh, several different kinds of trips I've had. So, uh, well done, Dylan. I really enjoy your work. And one last thing I want to mention is uh, a video that's uh, up on Google Video right now, and it's titled, American Drug War, The Last White Hope. And uh, be sure that you add The Last White Hope in your search, because there are uh, other videos with the first part of that title. Of course, uh, the fact that some of the faces in this documentary are those of people who have been our guests here in the salon makes me uh, like it even more, probably. Uh, so if you have time, uh, you might want to check it out. I uh, first learned that it was available online uh, from a posting by Sancho23 on our forum at thegrowreport.com. And uh, that post was uh, followed by a lot of additional commentary by uh, several people uh, like Victoria Pandora and a dime short and others. In fact, it was uh, a dime short's comment about Gary Fisher being in the film that prompted me to watch the entire two-hour video in, in order to uh, be sure not to miss him. Because I remember him telling me about the day the film crew uh, shot the interview. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll get him to tell that story someday. 
And one final thing I'd like to mention uh, today is about our Planque Norte mailing list in our Planque Norte tribe at tribe.net. I'm sorry to say that I just don't have the time to put into that project right now, and so uh, the list is inactive, and it's doubtful that there will be any uh, Palenque Norte ply logs at Burning Man this year, uh, mainly because I'm not going to be able to make it myself. But I will keep you posted as the burn gets closer and let you know uh, some of the theme camps who have fellow saloners among them. And if all goes well, you should be able to make some uh, lifelong friends there this year. So uh, stay tuned. Or uh, stay subscribed, I guess I should say. You do know, I hope, that uh, subscriptions of this podcast through iTunes and other aggregators uh, is free. Uh, Of course you know that. Uh, What am I thinking? Anyway, uh, I do plan on bringing you uh, some more information about this year's festival uh, in the months ahead. Well, uh, I guess that's about it for today. And uh, as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.